that we would draw closer to you, that we would become more like Jesus because of this study. And even tonight, Father, as we are introduced to this book and the history around this book, I pray you would edify your people, build us up, and then send us out. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I'm excited about starting this book. I think it's important to note that the Bible is one story. Everybody say one story. story. It's one story of God's glorious redemption. I'm so sorry. Children, you may be released. We love having you all join us for worship. And so the Bible is one story One glorious story of how God is saving man through his son, Jesus Christ. And if we were to just take this story and to divide it, I think we could see four clear chapters of redemption. And I want us to have this on our mind as we begin to look at the book of Nehemiah. The four chapters of the story of redemption, the first chapter is creation. God creates the world for his glory, for his pleasure. And within the world, there's many things, but the prime of creation is man, who he creates in his image, who he desires to walk with him, to love him, to serve him. But then that leads to chapter two of the story of redemption. We have the fall where man sins against God. They turn their back on God and disobey the one commandment that they were given. And because of that, all of creation is corrupted. Bondage, sin, hatred, murder, and many more wicked things enter into the creation. Chapter two is the fall. But chapter three is a glorious chapter and one in which we find ourselves in even to this day is the chapter of redemption. How God starts to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. We have the coming of Jesus Christ and now we have the appropriation of the work of Jesus Christ. God redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ. That is chapter three, redemption. But then chapter four is yet to come. It is consummation. Where, where the new kingdom and earth will be established and eternity will be with our God. The consummation of all that Jesus accomplished will be fulfilled. And we would have eternity with our God in his kingdom. So those are the four chapters. Creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. And I want you to know that Nehemiah, this book that we're getting ready to study, is only one piece of the grand narrative of Scripture. It's just a piece of the narrative, but it's an important piece. And you'll see as we study this book how this, this story and this work of God in the life of the people during that time was important. But if we just take a step back and try to summarize the book of Nehemiah, or if I should, I should say, if I take a step back and try to give you a summary of what I think we'll see here, it's simply this. We will see God's faithfulness to his covenant of redemption brings about protection and preparation for Jesus. As we look at this book, you're going to see God showing his faithfulness, displaying his faithfulness to his covenant of redemption. And as he does that, there's going to be two big themes that we see. This theme of protection and this theme of preparation. 
So we'll see God's faithfulness to his covenant of redemption brings both protection and preparation. And I want to be clear that that preparation is, is exclusively for Jesus. God is preparing a people. God is preparing a world for his son. And so as we consider this book and even tonight, the introduction of this book, I want you to know that this book, uh, this story, this story is a real story. And this story is a good story. And this story is our story. And so if I may, I just want to use that as an outline for our time together. That this is a real story. That this is a good story. And this is our story as we kind of have an introduction to the book of Nehemiah. Again, it's a real story. We're going to consider the Old Testament uh, context, the historical context of the book of Nehemiah, what led up to it and what was going on around that time. It's a real story. Then it's a good story. We're going to see how God works through Nehemiah, how God himself is working. And it's good to see. It's, it's better, I think, than any movie we can watch, seeing God work and move and rescue his people. It's a good story. But then thirdly, it's our story. It's our story. There's practical application. There's practical challenge for us in this book. So let's start with it's a real story. The history of the Old Testament, it's, it's so important for us to understand the person and the work of Jesus. And I have a chart here and I don't want to overwhelm you with the details. Could you hit the light for me, sweetheart? I don't want to overwhelm you with the details, but I want to try to paint a picture of the history of God's people and bringing about redemption. Many of you are familiar with the call of Abraham. Abraham's call is in Genesis chapter 12, all right? Genesis chapter 12. Basically, in between Genesis chapter 4 and 11, we just have brokenness, all right? After the fall, there's just brokenness, corruption, so much so that God floods the earth. And even after the flood, there's still sin, there's still brokenness. But in Genesis chapter 12, we have the call of Abraham. And what's unique about Abraham's call is that God had given a promise that he would, he would rescue his people, that he would crush the serpent's head. And that was a, a very vague promise. But with the call of Abraham, the promise begins to have some, some specificity to it. We know that through Abraham and his seed, all the nations will be blessed. God says, I'm going to bring redemption and I'm going to do it through Abraham and his seed. And so the call of Abraham is very important. The second kind of big piece in the history of uh, the story of redemption is the law given to Moses. And what I want you to note about the law given to Moses is that there were two things that were very significant. You have one, the sacrificial system, and then two, you have the priesthood. So the sacrificial system was these laws and commandments on how the people were to interact with God. And the priesthood stood as mediators in between God and his people, mediating through the sacrificial system. So we had the law given to Moses. Then the next big piece is the Davidic monarch. And so what I mean by that is just the, David's reign and David's son reigning after him. King David was given a promise, which is unique in this array of history in the Old Testament. God told David, and many of you know this promise, that, that you would always have someone on the throne. You would always have someone reigning from you, from your lineage, 
on a throne. David, I'm going to make your kingdom an eternal kingdom. And that's a promise to a king that is a great promise. And you kind of figure like, God, how are you going to carry out this promise? We see Solomon, David's son, who reigned in David's place. And he did some good things, but he also did some not so good things. And so Solomon's son after him, we see the kingdom of David divided into two parts. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Say northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So with these two kingdoms, we, you see the promise of David kind of in the air. What's going to happen? The kingdom is no longer one, it's two. I'll give you a brief history of the northern kingdom. They were basically on this fast track of disobedience against God. This fast track of disobedience. They were plummeting to destruction on a fast pace. In the southern kingdom, which was Judah and Benjamin, they were on a slow track of disobedience. They too were disobeyed, were just on a slower track of disobedience. And so in 721, God allowed the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom and ransack the kingdom of Israel, they would be called, the northern kingdom, Israel. And they destroyed the land and they dissembled the people and they took captives of the people and it was a tragedy. And scripture makes it clear that God allowed that because they were disobedient to him. And then a couple hundred years later, in 586 B.C., as the Assyrian Empire fell to the Babylonians, the Babylonians then took the southern kingdom captive. Why? Because of their disobedience. And so if you kind of look at this chart, we're just marching through this history. You have David and then his covenant, the covenant given to David, you got Solomon, and then you have Israel and Judah taken into captivity. And 70 years go by where they are disciplined and they are given this, uh, they're given this punishment for disobeying God's law. But then God moves as he always does in faithfulness and in gentleness and love. And he works through the heart of King Cyrus in 538 to allow the Jews to be released back into their land. And the, the, the return to the land, the promised land, happened in three waves. This is important. The first wave we actually have recorded in scripture with Zerubbabel in Ezra chapter 1 through 6. The second wave was with Ezra rebuilding the temple. And that's in the book of Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And the third wave of the people returning and the city being restored was through Nehemiah, the administrator, who rebuilt the walls of the city. Now, I wanted to put a little bit more emphasis on what the, the captors did to the land when they took the people captive. Now, I think this is important to emphasize. When they would take a people captive, they would destroy the land, they would destroy uh, they would dismantle the people and they would dismantle any religious systems that were set in place. And so you have the, the land destroyed, the religion destroyed and the people dismantled. When you see the return in these three waves, you have the people returning. You have the temple being rebuilt. And the last thing to be done was the walls to be rebuilt for the city to be back intact. And that's where we pick up in the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a Jew who served the king of Persia as his cupbearer. 
And he was burdened to learn that it had been a hundred years since the returning of the Jews, and yet the walls had not been rebuilt. And so with this burden in his heart, and as he's turning to God, he then turns to his boss and he tells him, hey, I would like to go back to my land and restruct these walls. And the king actually gives him permission to do so. And as he goes forward, even in the face of opposition, him and the people rebuild the walls in 52 days. In 52 days, they rebuilt the wall and they also see a unique spiritual awakening, a spiritual revival amongst the people. And if we were to just look at the main movements of this book, there are six of them. I want to give them to you. First, Nehemiah leads the third return of Jerusalem to rebuild, rebuild the walls. That's chapter one to chapter two, verse 20. The wall is rebuilt despite difficulties. That's chapter three, verse uh, chapter three to chapter seven. And then a third movement that's interesting in the book is that chapter seven just records the, the exiles who returned to the land. And re, do you remember my, my point here? That this is a real story. And how do we know it's a real story? There are real people, real names recorded in chapter seven. The fourth movement, if you will, as the people rebuilt the walls, God rebuilds the people around his word. And we see this awakening, this re revival from chapter 8 to chapter 10. In chapter 11 and 12, there's a celebration. They celebrate the walls being rebuilt. They celebrate God's word being restored and brought back into the community. Chapter 11 and 12, it's celebration. Chapter 13 is a disappointing chapter as Nehemiah deals with the problems within the community. Because after everything is established, after all the walls are built, people's hearts are not changed. And so people start doing what they always had done, rebelling against God, rebelling against his way. We start to see sin happening all over again. Before I move to my next point, I just want to highlight that if this is a real story, what we see Nehemiah doing is not only rebuilding a city, he wants to rebuild the people of God. Nehemiah had a burden to see the community of God restored. He wanted to see a covenant people restored to their covenant keeping God. And so the vision of Nehemiah is so much more than just the walls. It was the people themselves. And so that leads me to my second point of this is a good story. This is a good story, and there's a few reasons why this is a good story. Number, number one, it's just insightful for leadership. You can see how Nehemiah is leading, and there's many leadership principles that we can apply to ourselves. And I want to take a step back real quick and ask the question that I think deserves to be asked. Who is a leader? Who is a leader? Is leadership just for pastors or those who are in paid full-time ministry? Who are the leaders within the church? Who is called to lead? Because we don't see leadership principles here in the book of Nehemiah. But the question is, who are they for? Who is a leader? Robert Quinn, a leadership uh, professor at the University of Michigan, which we probably shouldn't listen to anything this guy has to say, right? Right. <laughs> 
being from Michigan. But he has joined with others and pointed out that the origins of the word leader means to go forth and die. To go forth and die. It's an amazing idea that leaders are those who go first to die. And it was used in a war term where those who would carry a flag would go into war and typically because they were in the front holding the flag, they would be the first one to die. And if we just take a step back and try to ask the question like, how are we defining leadership or how are you defining leadership in trail? I would say a leader is someone who presents sacrificial service to help people in their journey with God. And if that's how we can define a leader, someone who serves sacrificially, and we just think about the roles that can, that can be done in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our workplace, in our friendships, who's a leader? We all are. We all are. We all have been given a, a responsibility or a relationship in which we can serve sacrificially. One of our values here at Clearview is that we lead by serving. And so there are good principles, insightful principles on leadership. And I want to give you several of those. All right. Several principles in leadership, because this is this is a good story. You're watching a leader lead. And one of the first things we see about Nehemiah as a godly leader is that he prays. That he prays, a godly leader prays. I love as I just kind of listened to this book and just read through this book, as Nehemiah is kind of talking, there's parts in which he just stops and begins to pray. And it's hard to know like when he, it, the other conversation begins and when his prayer ends. He was a man of prayer. And godly leaders pray. I'm sure us who who have families or children, we understand the need of prayer. But this is one aspect of a godly leader. Second, a godly leader acts. A godly leader is not just someone who's passive, who just watches brokenness. They move in. They see brokenness. They see harm. They see something that needs to be done and they move in on it. They act. Number three, a godly leader faces opposition. And it's not because he just wants to, but opposition tends to come when you want to do the right thing. Can I get an amen? Opposition, a godly leader faces opposition and overcomes opposition. Number four, a godly leader cares about people. A godly leader cares about people. We see Nehemiah's heart for those who are being mistreated. We see Nehemiah's heart loving those, the people of God, wanting to see them flourish. He cared about people. A godly leader turns people. This is the next one. A godly leader turns people to God's word. This is a good one right here. Don't you say? That a godly leader is not just pushing philosophy or their own opinions on people, but a godly leader is turning people to God's word where we find a sufficient word, a word that is sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. A godly leader turns people to God's word. Number six, a godly leader confesses sin and he leads others to do so. We'll see that in chapters 
8 and 9, how there's, in, in, even in chapter 10, there's this revival where the people are confessing their sins. A godly leader, number seven, a godly leader leads people into specific commitments. I thought this was neat when Nehemiah came up with this plan to rebuild the wall. He had people rebuild very close to where they lived and they committed to doing that. And then lastly, a godly leader keeps on leading. Godly leader keeps on leading. And, and this is not only a good story because we see these principles of leadership, but this is a, also a good story because we see our covenant keeping God keeping the covenant. We see God in his faithfulness. I want to highlight a couple of things that we see the Lord doing as he's keeping his covenant. He's hearing the prayer of Nehemiah. He's hearing Nehemiah's prayer. Secondly, he's working providentially, especially through leaders in governments to bring about his greater purpose, which is amazing, right? When you think about our fact, the fact that our God is sovereign and that he even uses rulers of different nations to bring about his purpose. It's amazing. Thirdly, we see the Lord protecting his people. You see him protecting his people giving them this assurance that he's with them, that they're not alone. And lastly, we see the Lord being merciful and faithful to his promises despite his people's persistence in sin. We see him loving his people, mercying his people, even though they are rebelling against him. We see him being faithful to his promises. But this is not only a good story because we hear about leadership principles. And it's not only a good story because we see God displaying his faithfulness. It's also a good story because it prepares the stage for what might be called the most exciting part of redemption, the coming of Jesus. That was a good place for amen. amen. <laughs> well, what's more exciting about this story of redemption than then the redeemer comes? And that raises an important point here that the book of Nehemiah is not primarily about leadership, although we get some good principles on leadership. The book of Nehemiah is about redemption and how the faithful covenant keeping God brought it to pass. So we could say in one way or another that this is the last stop of the Old Testament before Jesus. And I kept the chart up just so you could see that. You have Nehemiah, and then you have the 400 years of silence, and the next thing you hear is a voice crying out in the wilderness, make way, make way, for the king is coming. And it's, it's, it's exciting to think about, because through the work of Zerubbabel, the people re-entered the land. And through the work of Ezra, the temple was rebuilt. And through the work of Nehemiah, the walls were rebuilt. So the city is ready. There's only one thing missing. The king. The king. And in 400 years, approximately 400 years, the king arrives. The king arrives. And that leads me to my last point, that this is our story. 
God in his grace has included us in this story of redemption. Turn back with me to chapter 9. Maybe you've never turned away from chapter 9. But chapter 9, look at verses 16 and 17 again. Chapter 9, verse 16, he says, But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you have performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. This is a glorious verse here. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. There's two things in these verses that I want to highlight. Number one, the rebellious stiff-neckedness of the Israelites and the Jews is the plight of all humanity. That's a good place for either amen or ouch, right? We are rebellious. We are stiff-necked people, and we do the same thing. This is the plight of all humanity. Scripture tells us that like all we like sheep have gone astray. We rebel against God. We sin against him. After he mercies us, we return right back to the dirt, right back to the pit. We are rebellious. This is the plight of all humanity. But the second thing that I want to highlight in this text is the hope of all humanity. It is the mercy and grace of God. Amen. That is our hope that God is ready to forgive. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That is our hope. That is our only hope. And that hope was given his greatest foundation and conviction when Jesus stepped on the scene. When Jesus stepped on the scene, he came as the perfect leader. We see him praying to the father, dependent on the father, not trusting in his own strength, but being led, doing the will of the father, empowered by the spirit. We see Jesus caring for people, loving people, healing people. We see Jesus demonstrating acts of kindness, acts of compassion. We said that a leader leads people to God's word. Think about the proclamation of Jesus. How he preached the truth and he gave the truth. He is the truth. Jesus had no need to confess sins. We talked about a leader confesses his sins. Jesus has no need to confess sins, but he gave his life in place of sinners. He went to the cross to die for us as our substitute. And when it looks like this good story was almost brought to an end because the hero died, three days later, he rose from the grave. He steps out of the grave with life and caused man to come to him. This is our story because that Jesus calls us today to trust him, to love him, to follow him. And he is the Savior who fulfills all that God has promised. And he beckons us to come, trust him, follow him, be redeemed, and spend eternity with him in the kingdom of God. This is our story. Because God invites us into it. 
And I just got some simple applications as we close, okay? Simple applications. I'm excited. Can I just be honest with you all? It was hard not to just jump right into the text and try to give you history and background of the book. I hope you're ready for the book. But I got a couple of applications before we even start really getting into the text. Number one, know the story. Know the story. It's that redemption narrative that I talked about at the very beginning. It's creation. It's the fall. It's redemption. It's consummation. Know the story because we're in it. We're living in this beautiful story of redemption for the glory of God. We find ourselves within a story. So know the story is one application. Second application is share the story. Share the story. I know that we all have this desire to share Jesus with the, this lost and dying world. But sometimes when we go and talk about Jesus to people without context of what God is actually doing, it may be hard for people to understand. And so this, this narrative of redemption with the four chapters is a way we can share God's redeeming love holistically, a way in which people can understand that from the very beginning after creation, the fall happened. And though the fall happened, God is restoring all creation through Jesus. And that there's this glorious hope and consummation that is coming. So share this story this way. And then thirdly, so know the story, share the story. And then thirdly, have hope as we wait for the end of the story. Have hope as we wait for the end. The best is yet to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word. Um, we, we are excited to study this book. We know that there are lessons you have for us as a new church plant, as a people who want to see you build up this community, as a people who are asking you for 1% of this city to come to know and follow Jesus. God, we know that there are lessons and there's also messages for us here. So open our hearts, prepare our hearts to receive your word and let it bear fruit in our lives and let it bear fruit in reaching the community. And Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that he is the answer to all our problems, all our brokenness, redemption in Christ. He is the hope of the world. We rejoice in him. And as we now turn our hearts to respond in worship, we do so knowing that you love us. You gave your son for us. And in him, we find life. We find hope. So thank you and receive our praise now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Let's respond in worship.